Thank you, Joe. Fear not might be a great segue into the passage of Scripture that we're going to be looking at today. If you'll remember, we began last week in uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, and went through uh, the first about 13 verses of that passage. And this is Jesus in his, in his really, quite literally, his final days, you know, almost his final day um, on, this, on, this, doing, on this planet, doing his teaching before the resurrection, before the crucifixion. And he is to the point now where his public ministry is very much so over. He is now at that point where any teaching he is going to do, anything that's, that, that he is going to be communicating is not going to be to the public as large at large. It's not going to be to the crowds. It's going to be to his disciples. His people are going to be um, hearing from him. And that includes our passage today. And in this passage, he is beginning to prepare and beginning to teach uh, his disciples about what the end is going to look like. What is it going to look like when everything is accomplished? And so we started that last week with, and we are looking at a series of about four kind of watch out passages. Watch out for this, watch out for that. And we got through two of those last week and we're going to get to two more today. Now, I had to laugh because at the end of, of service last week, one of our members walked up to me and he, he said, you know, I have been here since you started pastoring and all the years that you have been here, I cannot think of one time that you have preached on end times. I cannot think of one event that you have preached on end time, uh, the end times topic. And he's absolutely right. If you go through eight years of, of sermons that since I have been here and been your preaching pastor, I have not one time got up to the pulpit and really dived into what are the end times going to look like. And there's a reason for that. Often we become so obsessed with trying to figure out all of the meanings and the symbolism that come with any sort of apocalyptic writings and we try to see their application in the world around us and point to this event or that event or this person or that person so that we can try to like conclude that we're how close we are and how much time we have left. And when we do this, we forget to do what Christ is actually commanding us to do in the passages. So as we continue in our study today with these last two watch out statements, I want to challenge you today. Keep the mission in mind. We are given this information from Jesus, not so that we are in the know, not necessarily so that we are in some sort of circle of trust or so that we can create some sort of roadmap of political events and conspiracy theories in order to know how much time we have left. Rather, we are given this information to function as gasoline that fuels our evangelical zeal. Jesus tells us these things so that we may be prepared and we may be diligent to do the work of an evangelist. With that in mind, let's go into the text. And I would like to once again read the passage in its entirety, verses 1 through 27, in order to recognize that this is one full conversation from Jesus. If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. It says this, as he, he being Jesus, was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? 
Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign that all these things are going to be fulfilled? Jesus began to say to them, see to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he and will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you to the courts and you will be flogged in the synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever it is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death. And a father, his child, and children will rise up against parents and have, put, have them put to death. You will be hated be, by the, all because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains and the one who is on the housetop must not go down or, or the one who gets, who, um, who gets anything out of his house. The one who is in the field must not turn back and get his coat, but woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that it may not happen in winter for those days will be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of creation, which God created until now and never will. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened these days. And then if anyone says among you, behold, he, here is the Christ or behold, here he is there. Do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed. Behold, I have told you everything in advance. But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give off its light. And the stars will be falling from the heaven and the powers that are in the heaven will be shaken. Then they will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send forth his angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth and the farthest end of heaven. Please be seated. So as we mentioned, we have four watch out statements that we are looking at in this passage. The first two that we've already been through was the watch out for the false prophets and the people that are going to be coming in my name. And the second watch out was watch out that, that, that persecution is going to come and things are going to happen and, and, and that that is going to be part of the gospel going forth to the nations. And in, in both of those watch out statements, we, we have this idea that, that these things are going to happen, but these are not the end. In fact, they really just says these are, are barely the beginning of the end. 
This is just the start. And yes, they're going to be there. And yes, we even see them in the world around us today and, and wars and rumors and wars and, and persecution and many such things exist today. And Jesus would say, yes, those are a reminder that the end is coming, but they are not the end. In fact, they are barely the beginning of the end. Today, we continue on with that same idea. And our third watch out is found in verse 23. And in verse 23, we see that read as, take heed, be on the lookout, be aware. This take heed and, and is followed by, for I have told you everything in advance. And, and he's talking specifically about this kind of unique word that we have in this passage. And we actually see several places in scripture, which is the abomination of desolation. Now, I'm venturing most of you don't use terminology like this on the regular. This is a churchy phrase that sometimes churchy folk like to throw around in order to sound churchy. But most of you don't refer to things as the abomination of desolation or even use any of those words in your regular terms. This is a weighted term. This is a term that Jesus uses. He uses it specifically because it would have called to mind Scripture to those that were listening. Specifically, called to mind the words of Daniel the prophet. In Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, he mentions it when he says this, Forces from him, and this him is a foreign ruler, will arise. They will desecrate the sanctuary, the fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice. And they will set up the abomination of desolation. Now, the term abomination of desolation means that this something is going to happen that is, that is a, an affront to God. They are going to do something that is so offensive towards God that will ultimately lead to a certain area, a certain place becoming desolate, becoming uninhabited, unused, forgotten about. So this abomination of desolation is something is going to happen so bad that, as we can see from Daniel chapter 11, that worship of God will be completely abandoned. Whatever is going to happen will end to, will mark the end of temple worship, the end of sacrifices, the end of how the people worship God in years past. This is Jesus' answer to the question that they had asked at the very beginning of our chapter. Look again at verse 1 and 2. It says, as they were going out of the temple, they said, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said, Do you see the great buildings that not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down? Jesus is letting them know that as they, they've walked out and, and, and they're just so excited because they think that Jesus revealing who Jesus is going to be is going to be any day now. That there's, they don't know when it's going to happen. They don't know what it's going to look like, but they kind of have this vision. They have this idea that at some point Jesus is going to just finally say, wait a minute. And he's going to suddenly stand up and he's going to take off his robe. And then suddenly he's going to shine with the glory of God. And everybody's going to realize he's the Messiah. And, and Rome is just going to become liquid. And, and, and he's going to establish his kingdom. And it's going to be the greatest thing ever. And they're going to be like, Jesus, look how awesome the temple looks now. Now, this is a temple that was built by Herod the Great. I'm pretty sure he named himself and he did it to kind of really show what a great king he was. 
Now, this is the same Herod the Great that, you know, tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby. And they're saying, look how awesome this temple is. Look how awesome this looks. This is going to be, this is going to be perfect for when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus is now telling them, you see all of that? There is going to come a day where the temple that you are admiring will be completely annihilated. There will be nothing left of that temple except for the very bottom stones, which will just sit where they already are. There will be no ruins. There'll be no looking at it. They'll just, we'll be able to just find rocks of what the temple used to be. And he says, not only will that happen, but in that day, they will set up an abomination to God where the temple once was and the worship of God in the temple will cease to exist. Jesus is saying, listen, when I come into my kingdom, I'm not going to go live in the temple. Or I'm not going to continue worshiping in the temple like in in the perfectly right way. He's saying, listen, you need to get get it in your head. The temple will cease to exist. It is going to be gone and gone forever. We may be tempted to try and spiritualize the words that Jesus mentions in in this this talk of the abomination of desolation to be some great and and mystical future event, some fantastic thing yet to be seen and and something that we will, will maybe one day understand. The reality is, is that that it is highly likely and most scholars believe that the words Jesus has mentioned in this passage regarding the abomination of desolation have already come to pass. In fact, the very reason that Jesus is telling this to Peter and John and Andrew and James is because he knows that in the future, their world is going to be rocked. And the followers of this, this, the, of Jesus, the followers of this movement called the way will one day see the temple be destroyed and that they need to not abandon hope. In about 70 AD, roughly 40 years after Jesus says these words, the soon-to-be Emperor Titus would come to Jerusalem in order to squash a rebellion known as the Roman-Jewish War. A certain group of Jewish zealots had taken up and, and rebelled against Rome and had made Jerusalem their fortress. In what would be a very short amount of time, they managed to breach the walls of Jerusalem and the army took the city. Josephus, the Jewish historian, spoke of these events, and in doing so, he estimated that roughly 1.1 million Jews died in that battle. That the Roman armies literally came into the city of Jerusalem, and every man, woman, and child that was still in the city compounds was exterminated. This is why Jesus' words are found in verses 15 through 19, that those who see what is about to happen need to run and not go back because if they find themselves shut up in the city, they will most assuredly be slaughtered. Once there was no one left to kill in Jerusalem, Titus gave command to destroy the entire city, burning it to the ground and not letting, not letting one stone rest upon the other, including the temple compound. Titus' campaign ultimately moved on to other strongholds within 
the nation of of, uh, Judea, within the state of Judea, killing many more before finally he was satiated and went back to Rome. Had Titus' campaign continued, it it is most likely that he would have also completely squashed this fledgling faith called Christianity, which would have been seen as little more than an offshoot of the Judaism that they attempted to exterminate. Which is why in verse 20, Jesus says that unless the Lord had shortened those days, then no life would have been saved. But why? Why did Jesus tell his followers this horrible news, especially if there was nothing they could do to change it? Why bring up something like this when they had no idea how they, what they were going to do about it or if they even could? As I have already mentioned, we can see from verse 1 that, that for the, the Peter and James and for most of the people that were following Jesus, they were all Jews. And their entire life, their entire faith and their religious understanding of things had centered around the temple. You worshiped at the temple, you sacrificed at the temple, you knew God and you learned about God from the temple. Everything that they they had ever experienced about encountering God apart from their time with Jesus had revolved around the temple. It would have been devastating for Jesus' followers to see Jerusalem and the temple cease to exist. And yet Jesus was telling them that their faith and their identity should no longer be found in the temple or in the city of Jerusalem. Instead, their identity would be found in Christ, who was raised from the dead. And they would find their hope and their security in the Holy Spirit who would dwell within their hearts. No longer did the people of, the people of God need the tabernacle or the temple to have fellowship with God. For now, God would tabernacle within their own hearts. And so they needed to be prepared for when the temple would cease to exist. To be honest, this is not a new idea for Jesus, but this is something that he had been communicating from the very beginning of his ministry. If we go to John chapter 4, Jesus has an interaction with a Samaritan woman. and In the midst of that, she decides to throw a theological question to him about worship. Where do we worship? Do we worship in the temple or do we worship on the mountain? What is the right way? And this is Jesus' answer. Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Even now, even at the very beginning of his his ministry, as he's speaking to this Samaritan woman, he says, listen, there will come a day. In fact, that day is here where Jerusalem and the temple won't matter. And so Jesus is reminding the people even now as his time is coming to an end, listen, you're so proud of your temple and you're so proud of your city, but I've already told you that doesn't matter. And he's reminding them that the relationship that they have with him matters. That the Holy Spirit that will fill them 
at Pentecost and that will come for all those who place their hope and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That matters. I know that we live in a culture and because of the virus and because of politics and because of, uh, of what people have perceived as attacks on the Constitution that we have a huge fear about what is going to happen to the church. Let's take courage, people. If today or tomorrow soldiers marched on Tunnel Hill Baptist Church and tore it to the ground, we would still be children of God. And worship will be at my house at 11 o'clock next Sunday. And if you can't make it to my house, go to the Hodges. We don't need, our identity is not in this building. Our identity is not in a name. Our identity is not in a denomination. Our, their identity was not in the temple. Our identity is in Christ. And we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. Christianity is not found in church buildings, denominations, conventions, celebrity preachers or theologians, or even political parties. Christianity is found in the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, and in the hearts of all those who have been born again. After Jesus gives them this warning, he gives them one last watch out statement. And if we're being really honest, it's not really a watch out so much as a look. Behold. And this isn't, you know, necessarily that look up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. What Jesus is finally saying in this last part is that, that, that when he does return and when all things are accomplished, just like his followers had asked him, there will be no doubt As we look again and we see at the very end of, of uh, kind of this last section, it says, if anybody says, behold, here is the Christ or behold, he is there. Don't believe him for there'll be false prophets and, and, and fake Christ and they will arise and they will show signs and wonders and, and, and they will try to lead people astray. And if it were possible for the elect to be led astray, they would certainly do it. But in this passage, when he gets to this last point, he says, but in those days after the tribulation, after the events of, of Titus and his war, after those, those days, basically what he's talking about is could be right now. After those things happen, then we see all of these fantastic statements. This, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not show its light. The stars will cast down. After all of that happens, then the son of man will come. There are lots of people who expected Christ's return, return immediately after the days that were mentioned. And that after the temple went down and after all these things happened, they waited anxiously so much so that we see in Scripture that some would even, even just get up in the morning and go to the highest place in their town, go up on kind of the biggest hill, the highest mountain, and just sit there waiting all day for Jesus to show up. Paul reprimanded them from this behavior. And we too need to think biblically about this. Peter wrote in it this way. But do not let this one fact escape your notice. Beloved, that the Lord 
that to the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. This is found in 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter himself even quoting Psalm 90. So while these words have not yet been fulfilled, we are certainly not past the time of their fulfillment. Jesus says, after all these tribulations is done, then the time will come. And we are in that point where it could be any minute. And we need to take Peter's words to heart there. You may think it's taking too long. You may think it's too slow. But Peter reminds the people that what you consider slowness, God considers mercy. And that if the Lord tarries, he tarries to see people saved. And that's where we come in. So what does it say? What are the words being spoken in this passage and what do they mean? This is where we really get into that strange apocalyptic type writing. There are just certain places in scripture. We find it in Daniel. We find it right here. We find it over in the book of Revelation where they begin to make descriptions and they begin to talk about things that, as my grandmother said, who I know is watching right now, are scary. And when we think about the sun growing dark and the moon disappearing in the sky, when we think of stars falling from the heaven and, and all the other things described by Daniel and John and, and, all, and Mark even, these are scary things. And again, I have no doubt that, that you, we will find all sorts of people who have tried to explain these events in some way, shape and form. And it doesn't take much time around the internet to, to realize that there are people who, quote unquote, have it all figured out. Thanks to moons or constellations or whatever nonsense they are spitting. However, I want to take you back to creation. I want you to think about what's being said in this passage, that the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, that the stars will fall from the heaven and that the powers that are in the heaven will be shaken. And then I want you to just go with me back to Genesis 1. On the second day of creation, we read these words. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the water from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. And he called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning, a second day. Go to the fourth day. We read this. Then God said, let there be Lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let there be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be for the lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. And he made the stars also and God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. So 
So this imagery that we read in Mark chapter 13 is pointing to the reality that God is undoing creation. When God created, He created the heavens, and He created the earth, and He created the distinction between the two, and yet in the end of days we see that the very heavens will be shaken. As we read in creation, we see that that God made the sun and the moon, that he made all the stars. And we can go to other places and know that he he put them in every spot and knows them by name. And yet, in the time that Jesus comes, those will stop, cease giving their light, that they will cease reflecting their light. And that those very stars will begin to fall from the heavens. Jesus is telling his people that when all things are accomplished, it will be far newer than their minds can possibly comprehend. Jesus' return would not just mean that he would come onto the earth and kind of fix everything and tidy everything up and make everything work right and then everything would be good. His return meant that everything in creation would be fundamentally new. When Christ returns, it is not just us who will be made new. It is not just our political structures that will be made new. It's not just even our attitudes and our hearts that will be made new. But indeed, all of creation will be made new. Revelation 21 tells us this as well. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. We have to understand people. Jesus is preparing his people for the reality that that God is making all things new. And that's a good thing. That is something to be excited about. Jesus reminds the people that their identity is found in him, not in the temple or in Jewish religion or structure. He reminds them that when he comes, all things will be set new. And finally, finally, after he explains all of these things, he says, then they will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory. When all of this happens, Christ will return. Not he might return, not he may return, not we just hope that possibly it will be in his best interest to return, but Christ will return. And when he returns, there will be no question it is him. That is why he says repeatedly when people say, hey, Jesus is over here. Hey, Jesus is over there. Look, he's in the woods. Look, he's up on the mountain. Look, he's over yonder. Look, Jesus is here. You say, nuh When I return, there will be no question. You won't need to look anywhere. Because when I return, all eyes will be on me. There will be no mistaking from the holiest of holy people to the greatest sinner. All will see Jesus, both the living and the dead. Revelation 19 shows us this return. And it is good for us to take in what he says, because when we realize how Christ is coming back, we know we can't be fooled. John says, and then I saw the heavens opened up and behold, a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire and his head are many diadems. He has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. 
He is clothed with robes dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean are following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the almighty and on his robes and on his thigh, he has written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When Christ returns, we will know. And we can find comfort in that. Or at least we will find comfort in that as we read this particular passage, if we are in Christ. So what do we do with all this information? How do we look at everything we've learned over the last two weeks and everything we could possibly learn about end times things? You've already heard my apprehensions about even teaching such things because my fear is that it fuels speculation. When I think Jesus tells us things such as what we've read today because he wants to fuel something very different. Peter wrote about it this way in 1 Peter. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober in spirit for the purpose of prayer. And above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sin. What do we do with the information that Jesus gives us about his return? We pray. We pray that, that we will be ready. We pray that we will be faithful. We pray that the hearts and minds of other people will, will be open to the gospel and be saved. We walk with God. We remain of sound judgment, sober in spirit. We do not let false people with false doctrines lead us to the left or to the right. We do not forget who we belong to and that the promises of scripture are true. And lastly, we share Christ. See, James and John and Peter and Andrew were excited about Christ's return. But as we read some of the passages today, they sound quite scary. The reality is, is that when Christ returns for those who are in Christ, it is the best thing that can ever happen. Because our suffering and our acquaintance with sin and our remembrance of all of our pain and sorrow will cease to exist. And we will be in the presence of of our Father in heaven, on a new heaven and a new earth, free from sin for all of eternity. But for those who are not in Christ, it is quite different. And the war and the judgment and the fierce wrath of God that we read of in Revelation will be laid upon them. When Christ comes, he will collect his church from the four current, from the four, I can't talk, from the four corners of the world. 
And brothers and sisters, we need to make sure that as many people are a part of that church as we are able. For it cannot be satisfactory to us that even one remain outside of the grace of God that we have in Christ. Now, as we talk about that in a church, we often point to a, a picture that helps us communicate the gospel. And that picture goes up there and we see that God has a design. And, and that's really what a lot of this is about. We've talked about that God has a design, that God has a purpose and a plan, that we see that in creation. We even see that in the words of Jesus here, that Jesus is working out his perfect plan. And all of us in this world are a part of that perfect plan. We have a purpose. We were made with a purpose. We, we have a design, but we don't follow that design and we go our own way. And that's called sin. And every single human being in this room and every single human being to ever draw breath has done that. And we have picked our own way over God's way and that has led us to a place of brokenness. And we all feel that brokenness. We feel it, we know we're not right. The Bible says for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God and, and that falling short of God's glory leads us to wanna to find a new way to fill up that glory that we have fallen short of. And so we will use so many different things, including religion. We'll try to do like the Jews did and try to turn Tunnel Hill Baptist Church or someone else into our temple. And if we do enough good that we'll be fixed, we, we try to find that glory in our children. We find, try to find that glory in wealth or, or power or influence. But we all know that we cannot fix what is broken in our lives by our own, by our own efforts and our own power. And so we needed power from outside of us to fix our brokenness. And that's what we find in the gospel. We are, are but a few verses away for seeing Christ complete his mission in the gospel of Mark. And that is the gospel mission, which is Jesus came. He lived a perfect life to die on the cross for your sins and for mine. And then he rose from the graves three days later. And the Bible says that if we believe that Jesus is everything he said he is, that he is the son of God, God in the flesh, that he accomplished everything that, that, that he set out to accomplish. And because he is everything he said he is, and he did everything he set out to do, because of that, God raised him from the dead. And if we believe that in our hearts, and if we confess Jesus as Lord, repenting of our sin, turning away from our sin and our brokenness and turning, turning towards Jesus, we will be saved. And we will begin to recover and pursue God's design for our lives. We will not need to fear the day that Christ returns because we have an identity in Christ and we will be found faithful in him. If you're with me today, whether you are online or in the room with me today, and the words that we read about in here scare you to death, then I would ask you this, is the reason why you're scared because you still see yourself as broken. You still see yourself as trapped in sin in unable to get out of your brokenness. And if Christ came back today, he would find you broken, dead in your sins. Then I would challenge you today, what is preventing you from believing on the Lord Jesus Christ repenting of your sin, turning towards Christ and being saved.
as that is your, if that is your desire today, we would invite you to not let one more day go by without making Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior. And as we come in just a few moments to worship God through song, we want you to just be having that conversation with the Lord. And if you're ready to make a decision for Christ at the end of our service, I'm going to be up front and I would love to talk to you about the decision you have already made or making a decision to make Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior. Let us pray. Our gracious God and King, God, as we look at these statements that you have given us in the Word today, Lord, we are reminded that, that, that not only do, did you have a purpose and that you are bringing all things back to you, but God, also that we have a purpose while we wait for you to return. Lord, I pray that each and every person in this room will have a burden, first off, for, to have a relationship with Christ. Lord, that if there is a single person in this room that looks at what Jesus is talking about in this passage and is afraid, is afraid of his return, is afraid of what will happen when he does return, Lord, I pray that today is the day that they cry out to Jesus, that they will make him their Lord and Savior so that they will never have to experience him as judge. God, I pray they surrender their lives to you and that they are transformed through the power of the Holy Spirit. God, for the rest of us, I pray that there is a burden on our heart, knowing that, that the, the, the wine press of the wrath of God is being prepared for those who are outside of the body of Christ and that we take it upon ourselves, that we become diligent, even absorbed in the fact that people need to hear about Jesus. And God, as we zoom in on our community and as we zoom in on our friends and our family, Lord, that we will not let one more day go by without sharing Christ with people. Lord, I know that there are people watching online and that there are people in this room that are going to have friends over or go to friend's house to watch a football game tonight. And Lord, I pray that, that if there is anybody in this room and there is someone in that, in that football game party, that Super Bowl party that they have a burden for to know Christ, that they share Christ with them today. And Lord, I pray that people are getting saved over football and nachos because people have a burden to see them come to know Christ. So that when Christ does return, we will be found faithful. They will be found faithful. And this will not be a day of fear and trembling, but a day of rejoicing. Lord, we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.